The third scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Christmas, everyone. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us today on this Christmas Sunday, and also for those of you who are watching online as well. Uh, let me just begin uh, by saying this before we dive into the sermon. Uh, I realize that there is a lot going on uh, in our world right now with Omicron. Uh, so on behalf of our staff and our church leadership, I want you to know that we are going to do our due diligence to monitor uh, the situation on a day-to-day -day basis, just like any other church, organization, or company. And if there are any significant changes that take place, we're going to update you, whether it's uh, with regards to uh, our changes in our Sunday service or uh, communion groups, which will be in a few weeks again. So we'll update you with any changes that, that take place. Um, but if you're like me, uh, you kind of feel like the past two years have sort of been like this dystopian experience where the world is sort of, you know, self-imploding and, and there seems to be no escape from this world that we live in. And, you know, maybe, maybe uh, the fact that today is Christmas Sunday is an opportune time for us to think about um, what, what is, you know, Christianity about? What is Christmas about? And it's the idea of of an even greater vaccine that has come into the world to really cure the world of all of its ills and all of its problems, uh, from our own individual sins uh, to the weary world that we live in as well. And so what we've been doing for the past few weeks, if you're just joining us for the first time, is that uh, we've been taking a look at um, some of the mothers of Jesus. And we're doing this series because um, we want to take a look at some of the women in Jesus's family tree that deserve our recognition uh, because apart from these women, we would have no Christmas. And so we're taking a look at some of these different women every week. And today we're going to be taking a look at a figure whom uh, Catholics tend to overemphasize and Protestants tend to underemphasize, and that is Mary. There was one person that was always present with Jesus from the womb to the tomb, and it was Mary. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is to step, step inside the, the shoes of this unwed teenage girl that was probably around eight months pregnant because it is through her the Savior of the world would come uh, to, to save us. And so he, here is the setting. If you take a look at verses 1 to 3 of our text, Luke begins his gospel by saying, in those days, 
Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their hometown to register. Notice the way the Luke, that Luke begins his gospel. He says, in those days. He doesn't begin by saying, once upon a time, but he begins by saying, in those days. So the Bible has a historical bent to it, not a fictional bent to it. So when you read the Bible, the Bible has real people, real places. It doesn't have imaginary people like Gandalf or, you know, hobbits or imaginary places like Middle Earth or whatever, but it has real people, real places. So, for example, Caesar Augustus. We know that Caesar Augustus was the nephew of the Julius Caesar, and we have archaeological evidence for Caesar Augustus. We also know that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and Quirinius is not only mentioned in the Bible, but Quirinius is also mentioned in extra-biblical sources outside of the Bible in works such as Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, uh, and even, even Caesar Augustus himself. So the Bible has very much a historical bent to it, real people, real places. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible is true, but it does mean that it doesn't fall under the genre of fiction, legend, or fable, but it does fall under the genre of history. And so it says that in these days, a census took place. Now, what is a census? A census is when the government wants to count how many people there are so that they can count how many people to tax. So that's what a census is. And the way that they uh, did the census was by having everyone go to their own hometowns. So I'm from Rutherford, New Jersey. I would have to go to Rutherford, New Jersey to register uh, for the census. And this included, this census included an unwed teenage girl that was probably around eight months pregnant. And it is under this sort of regime and, 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 and the opposition of the Roman government uh, and the census that the Christmas story takes place. And so if you read with me verses four and five, it says this, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married with, uh, to him and was expecting a child. So we have Nazareth and, and Bethlehem. And, you know, for our, you know, if you're not familiar with the uh, geography of Israel, here's a map uh, to help you sort of uh, understand what this trip looked like. So Joseph and Mary were up north in Nazareth, and they would make the trip all the way down to Bethlehem. This is the equivalent of New York City, all the way down to Philadelphia, so about 97 miles. Now keep in mind, these were the days before planes, trains, and automobiles. These were the days before Ubers that you could take late at night. These were the days before Airbnbs and hotels. So this was a very, very much a long and arduous uh, journey. James Strange, who is a uh, biblical archeology span professor, says this, it was a fairly grueling trip in antiquity, the most, the most we find people traveling is 20 miles a day. And this trip was very much uphill and downhill. It was not simple. It's in the 30s during the day and rains like heck. It's nasty, miserable, and at night it would be freezing. So if you do the math, if, if the most people walked was 20 miles per day, this journey was about 90 miles, it would have taken about four and a half, five and a half days. 
However, if you're eight months pregnant, <laughs> that journey probably would have taken more than four and a half, five days. In all likelihood, it would probably have taken double. It's about 10 days of traveling. And contrary to the burning images that we have in our mind of Mary conveniently riding on a donkey, chances are if you're eight and a half months pregnant, you do not want to sit on a donkey for 10 days straight. So what was Mary doing in all likelihood? She was walking this journey all the way from New York City down to Philadelphia. And what I find so fascinating about this journey uh, at, from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem is that 700 years prior to Jesus being born, the prophet Micah predicted the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem. And in Micah 5.2, we read this, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah is another way of saying Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, so a no-name town, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So 700 years prior, the prophet Micah predicted the birthplace of Jesus, and God would use something like a census for this prophecy to come to fulfillment. Let me just tell you, I cannot even predict a ball game. I can't tell you who's going to win a game. I certainly can't predict a parlay of multiple games. But here, 700 years prior, God is telling a story of what's going to happen. Our nation is not even 700 years old. But God is predicting the birthplace of Jesus. And I just want to press a pause button there for a moment to think about our own lives in light of this. Because what this means is that God is in control of the future. He not only knows the future, but he's in control of the future. He's also very good. And if this is the way that God is, how can we not trust him with our own lives as well? And one of the best litmus tests to know whether you really trust that God is in control over your life, one of the best litmus tests is your level of anxiety. You know what anxiety and worry is? Anxiety and worry is imagining the future, imagining tomorrow without God in it. That's what anxiety and worry is. If you knew that God was there for you tomorrow, which is why he says over and over again, do not worry about tomorrow, for that will not add a single hour to your life. If you really, really believe that, you would not have anxiety and worry. But what is anxiety? Imagining the future without God in it. There's a personified story of death walking into a city. And as death is walking in, the gatekeeper says, whoa, stop right there. What do you think you're doing? And death responds by saying, I've come to kill a thousand people. And seeing that he could not do anything to overpower death, the gatekeeper begins to run around the city warning everyone that death is coming, death is coming, death is coming. But by the end of the day, there were not only 1,000 people that were killed, there were 10 thousand people that were killed. So the gatekeeper goes up to death and says, what's up? I thought you were only going to kill 1,000 people. Why are there 10,000 people that are dead? And death responds by saying, I did only kill 1,000 people. Anxiety and worry killed the rest. We live in an age of anxiety. We are perhaps one of the most anxious generations in history. And I'll tell you what anxiety does to us. In Proverbs 12, 25, it says this. Anxiety in a man's heart 
it weighs him down. Have you ever gone backpacking before with a heavy backpack? You know how heavy that backpack is, right? Because it's filled with all this stuff. Anxiety weighs a man down. So when, whenever you're anxious about something like the trajectory of your career, Omicron, I was just anxious right now about how my kids would perform. Last time they performed, one of them had her finger up her nose the entire time, and so I, I had anxiety. Uh, we're anxious about, you know, when are we going to get married? Uh, we're anxious about a ton of things. And the, and the tricky part with this is that we're very rarely anxious about just one thing. We're usually anxious about, like, multiple things. And so every time you're anxious about what's happening in our world, it's like a brick in that backpack. And then you're anxious about your, your job, it's another brick. Your relational status, another brick. Uh, the vacation that you, you, you planned but is now ruined because of Omicron, how am I going to get my money back? Another brick. It's like family drama during holidays, another brick. Can, can you feel the weight of this now, this backpack? This is what anxiety does to us. It weighs a man down. You can't see anxiety, but you sure the heck can feel anxiety. And whenever we have anxious hearts, it weighs us down. And the reason why I mention this is because Micah is not the only one that prophesied about Jesus. But did you know that in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that are made about Jesus. And every one of them comes true. Again, I cannot predict one ball game, let alone 300 ball games, as to who is going to win. But clearly, if these prophecies do come into fulfillment in the person of Jesus, it means that he is in control. And if he is in that control over human history and over your life in particular, why do we suffer from anxiety? So my question to all of us today is, how anxious are you right now? And are you willing to place your trust and surrender to the one who holds tomorrow in his hands or not? And so the story continues in verse 6 to 7. It says, while they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So in all likelihood, Mary and Joseph did not try and go to the Marriott or Stewart Hotel only to find out that they were overbooked. What they probably went to was the home of a relative. Again, keep in mind that they are from Bethlehem. So chances are they knew an aunt or an uncle or grandma or someone there. But also keep in mind that they were not the only ones making that trek to Bethlehem. Everyone who grew up in Bethlehem is now making the trek back to Bethlehem. So chances are that, that the home that they wanted to stay in, of whatever relative, also had other grandmas and grandpas and cousins. And so there was no room for them to stay there. So the only room that they had was the room that animals would stay in at night. And the reason why animals would stay there at night uh, specifically is so that they would not get stolen in the middle of the night. So this was the only, only place for them to be. And chances are, you know, they didn't just stay there one day, you know, contrary to the, the images that we have, but they could have been there for weeks uh, before Mary actually uh, gave birth. Uh, but the point, of, the, the point of all of this is that Jesus was not born in a first-class hospital so much as he was born in the context of a very, very, very muddy and messy manger. Uh, a professor at, at UNC, James Taber, who is not a Christian, takes a historical look at the birth of Jesus and he says this, when you read the accounts of Mary's unsuspected pregnancy, what is particularly notable is an underlying tone of realism. 
that runs through the narratives. These seem to be real people living in real times and places. In contrast, the birth stories in Greco-Roman literature have a decidedly legendary flavor to them. For example, in Plutarch's account of the birth of Alexander the Great, Mother Olympias got pregnant from a snake. It was announced by a bolt of lightning that sealed her womb so that her husband Philip could not have sex with her. Now granted, both Matthew and Luke include dreams and visions of angels, but the core story itself, that of a man who discovers that his bride-to-be is pregnant and knows, knows he is not the father, it has a realistic and thoroughly human quality to it. The narrative, despite its miraculous elements, rings true. So there, there's, a, there's a realism, again, to this story. Now, it doesn't mean that it's true, but there is a realistic bent to it. However, what doesn't sound realistic to us is the idea of God becoming a baby. That is not only unfathomable to our modern sensibilities, but also to ancient sensibilities as well. For example, Plato, who we all know is very smart. In the Republic, Plato said this, does anyone, either God or human being, willingly make himself worse in any way at all? It's impossible for a God to want to alter himself. He remains simply in his own shape. And so for Plato, the idea of the incarnation, God becoming a human, it wasn't only um, incomprehensible, it, it was inconceivable. It was unfathomable that a God would purposely condescend himself to make himself worse in any way. I mean, why, why would they do that? I like what Augustine says, who is equally as sharp as Plato, who also wrote the very first autobiography in human history. Augustine said, he was created, he that is Jesus was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. Now we understand, particularly if you grew up in the church, we understand the idea that we are all made in God's image. What might be a little bit more plexing is why God would wanna be made in our image. We're made in God's image, but why would he wanna be made in our image? And that's, that's the part that's sort of inconceivable. Why would he wanna become like us? Uh, to help illustrate this, um, I was talking with uh, uh, a member of our community who actually writes about Asian American entertainment. And um, she, uh, she tipped me off to a relatively new show on Netflix called Hellbound. And she said, you gotta check it out because I just wrote a piece about it and all this stuff. So I started watching it. And without giving any spoilers about Hellbound, uh, what's pretty interesting about the show is that um, there are these people in society that receive condemnations or what they call decrees. So these like demonic monstrous creatures come up and they give random people like a condemnation, like you are hellbound tomorrow at 3 p.m. or you are hellbound in three years at noon. And so they're giving all these condemnations to random people. And so this new organization, you know, sort of emerges called the New Truth. And the New Truth is trying to interpret, you know, these uh, uh, condemnations or these decrees. And their interpretation is this. If there's one common theme with all these people that receive decrees and condemnations is that they're all sinners. Like that person over there, they're using their company's credit card for the wrong things. They deserve to go to hell. Or that person there, they, they committed adultery. They deserve to go to hell. This is God's way of telling us that we need to live a more righteous life. We have to stop sinning. And so the new truth is like sort of proselytizing this message to the entire world and, and fear grips everyone because no one wants to you know, burn in hell for all of eternity. 
And so it works. Now, when you hear that narrative, right? You know, we have to stop living a sinful life. We have to live more righteous lives or you're going to burn in hell. What does that sound like? It sounds like every religion that's out there, right? Uh, you have to do more good deeds than bad deeds. Otherwise, you're going to get, you know, some kind of hell, right? So whether it's Islam, Judaism, you know, Buddhism, what, you name it. That narrative, this, and so this is where all religions to a certain degree, they are fundamentally the same. Do more good things on the scale of morality than bad things, and you'll, you know, you're not going to get reincarnated to become a rat, you know? So this is what all religions are sort of like. All religions are fundamentally the same, just superficially different. Like there's Muhammad, you know, uh, you, know you, you have Buddha over there, and, you know, Hindus have all these other millions of gods. Superficially different, fundamentally the same. However, in Christianity, the story is totally different because the message of Christmas is not God coming down to us and saying, hey, save yourselves by your righteous deeds. Give to charity, save yourselves. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is God coming downstairs with a baby because we can't save ourselves. I have come to save you. You are already dead in your transgressions. You can't live that righteous life. That's why I came. And so this is where, while all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different, Christianity is fundamentally different and just superficially the same as every other religion that is out there. There is only one person that can erase all of our bad deeds. And it is not us, but it is him. It is not our works, but it is his works that can do that. Which is why even though the story of Christmas is about Jesus's crib, we can never separate his crib from the cross that he hung on. And what we see in this crib is Mary giving birth and delivering a baby. But what we see on the cross is this baby delivering her and the world from its sins. And as a result, what happens when Jesus comes is not only saving us from our sins and saving us um, uh, from our, our transgressions, but he's also come to save us from things like the anxiety, uh, loneliness, and isolation that we feel as well. So if you take a look at verse 25 and 27 of John, this is at the end of Jesus' life. He says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, that's Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, he took her home. You know, there is only one person we see in the Bible that was present in Jesus's life from the womb all the way to the tomb, and that was Mary. And here is Mary standing at the foot of the cross, watching her firstborn son die. You know, I mentioned this last week, but there, there is no kind of love like a mother's love. Uh, a mother's love is one of the most special kinds of love that we have. But here in this story, we not only see the love of a mother, but we also see the love of God. Because as God is hanging on the cross, what does he say, woman? And by the way, woman was not a derogatory term or disrespectful term, so much as it was a term of affection. He says to our woman, here is your son, and he looks at John, and he says to John, John, here is your mother. Now, what is Jesus doing here? 
you know, whenever someone utters their final breath, uh, their final words with their final breath, you should listen to what they're saying because chances are their final words with their final breath is probably pretty important to them. And what is he saying here? Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your, here, here is your mother. What is he saying here? What's happening here is that Jesus is building a whole new kind of family. What I find so fascinating about this is that Jesus himself was never married. He never had sex. He didn't have any kids. And yet here is a single man who never had sex, never had his own kids. Here is a single man that is constructing this whole new kind of family. And one of the reasons why I think this is so important, especially during this time of the year, is because study after study shows just how lonely all of us are. Study after study shows that um, loneliness is, and social isolation is the equivalent of smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. Loneliness is twice as deadly as obesity. And uh, according to another study, more than half of us, more than half of us report to feeling almost always left out or feeling unwanted. The writer Thomas Wolfe, describe loneliness as a central and inevitable experience of every single person. And yet what does John do here? According to the story after Jesus died, from that day on, he took Mary home to be his mother. John and Mary both understood that the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of your ancestors. And oftentimes I dream and I wonder, what, what would this kind of community and family look like if we all actually thought this way? Where, it, where relationships weren't commodified and just transactional all the time, like what can you do for me if, if we become friends? But we actually treated each other like family. And secondly, how do we even pursue this kind of family? What would it look like? Christine Hoover says this, community isn't something that comes to us, it's something that we go toward. We make choices that either invite community or hinder the very thing we long for. The reasons I struggled with, with friendship were many. I lacked initiative, I had very specific parameters placed around what type of friend I wanted and how they would relate to me and I used time constraints as an excuse. But primary among them was that I chose not to take the risk and be vulnerable with other women. I wanted close community, but I resisted revealing myself or asking for help. Vulnerability is the spark for us to enjoy and help cultivate true community. Vulnerability happens when we trust others with the sensitive areas of our lives, those aspects about us that feel fragile or reveal our imperfections. Revealing ourselves feels risky because it involves embracing weakness and imperfection. Image keeping feels far less risky. But do you, know, do you wanna know a secret? People can see through our defenses anyway. We're not hiding as much as we think. Vulnerability is the way we lay down our arms. Vulnerability takes a weakness and makes it a strength, a bonding agent, because acknowledging our need for God and others attracts fellow vulnerable sojourners like a magnet. Perfection striving may impress, but it is vulnerability that wins friends. Don't be your own worst enemy. Don't let fear and severe self-protection hinder the very thing that you long for. Take that risk of vulnerability. So let me just close with two easy things that you can do. 
Uh, one thing that you can do, particularly if you're new to our church and, and you want to meet more people because the more people you know, the happier you are with the church, the less people you know, the more unhappy you will be with the church. One practical thing that you can do is to sign up for our community groups in the new year. Uh, that's one practical way that you can dive more into our community because we want you not to just come and leave, but we want you to actually find a home here in this gigantic city that we live in. And for those of you who might uh, not be Christian and you're here just checking out you know, church and um, thank you for coming. Um, and one of the, the challenges or action steps that you can take is this. You know, when Mary and Joseph went to uh, this home, there was no room for them in the end. There was no room for them there. And one of the challenges that I would like to make to you is don't make that same thing with your heart. There are lots of things that occupy our hearts, right? our work, our friendships, our families. But as your heart is filled with all of these things, make sure that there is room for him in your heart. Don't leave him out. And it could be as simple as inviting him in, saying, I want a relationship with you. And so for those of you who are on a kind of spiritual journey or pilgrimage, and oftentimes these journeys can be long, just like going from New York City all the way down to Philadelphia, I want you to know that we are here to be a support system for you to help you on this journey and this, uh, uh, this road that you are on. But make sure that you're not doing it alone. And we would love to walk with you as you uh, go on this journey. Let me just close with something cheesy. I know that during this time of year, we, we like to focus on the uh, presents that are underneath our Christmas trees, and rightly so. Uh, but during this time of year, in the midst of all the commercialization that is taking place, uh, let's remember the one who hung on, hung on the tree for us uh, because he really is the greatest gift that we could have ever received, especially in times like this. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we live in uncertain times that cause uh, a lot of fragility and anxiety in us. Uh, but help us to know that you are the one who holds um, the world in the palm of your hands. Help us to place our trust in you. As anxiety weighs us down, God, your word also says that a good word lifts us up. And so may we remember the good news in the midst of all the bad news that is around us, that Jesus Christ has come, that you are with us. And in the end, you will make all things that are wrong right again by reversing the curse of sin. We long for that day. We believe in that day as well. In your name I pray, amen.